Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and website, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. I'm Natalie Walton, and this is Imprint, a podcast about creating a life you love. Before we start today's episode, I just want to thank you for listening and sending so many wonderful DMs and emails about how much you're enjoying the podcast. It really does mean so much. And if you haven't already, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it today or share with a friend. That's something that I often do when I find a podcast or an episode that I know will help some of my friends on their journey or be of interest to them. Okay. Let's get on with today's episode. Hello, everyone. This week, we're focusing on creative journeys and some of the big lessons that have been learned along the way. And today I'm speaking with Ella Bancroft, a writer and an activist for the environment and indigenous rights. Obviously, these are topics that are front of mind and heart right now. I really learned so much from our conversation, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I did.
thank you for um, having me here today in your home. I'm very honoured that you have agreed to this interview. Um, I have. I first came across you at um, Nuri Bar. There was an International Women's Day where you gave a talk. And I was very inspired by what you spoke about that day. And then I kind of came across you again, I guess, through um, Instagram and saw you sort of what you share on that space and also your involvement with returning, which um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about as well. And so it's um, obviously you're a very active member of, of this community within the Byron region. And um, I thought we would just start with if you could introduce yourself and say a little bit about your story and where you grew up and how you came to be here in Byron as well. So do you want to just start and share a little bit about your, your kind of, I guess, childhood a little bit as well? Sure. Um, so my name is Eleanor Bancroft um, and I am a descendant of the Dajum clan of the Bundjalung Nation. Um, the Dajum clan come from outside of Grafton and Ararat um, and on my father's side I have English heritage. Um, so I grew up and was born in a home in Sydney. My, my mother and my father moved there in the late 70s and then when I was about five my mom decided to move back um, to country. She really wanted me and my older brother to experience what it was like to live on the mission with the rest of our cousins and to experience growing up where there wasn't electricity, where um, we didn't have access to shops so readily, and we lived pretty deep in the rainforest. And that was a really huge imprint in my upbringing. Um, we didn't last very long there because my brother wanted to be in Sydney playing cricket and um, kind of follow his cricket career that he was doing. But the time that we did spend there made a dramatic imprint into who I am now, just to live so like off grid, but you know, it wasn't trendy. It was a shack by a river, essentially an hour away from any shops. How old were you? I was five when we moved yep. there um, and we went to school with 30 kids who were all either blood relatives or um, relatives by marriage and we had two classrooms, kindergarten to year three and then four, five and six and another one and we really got to experience what it was like to live in a rural mission um, amongst, you know, culture but also understanding the real displacement of um, Indigenous people in this society and, and, and really stepping into two worlds, going from Sydney, which is, you know, fast-paced and, and not incredibly multicultural if you look around, and then stepping right into the kind of rainforest and, and cultural experience I think really played a part in both me and my brother's work. Yeah. Wow. And so then where did you go then after that? Did you go back to Sydney or? Yeah, we went back to Sydney. My dad was still living there. My parents were separated by then. And yeah, we returned back and I was about seven and a half um, when we went back there and um, went back to school and went back to our, our, our home that we were living in prior to that. My mom had just rented that space out. 
And so your mum is an artist. Was she a practicing artist during those early childhood years as well? Yeah, I mean, um, me and my brother grew up, we laugh about it now, but never having a dining room table or a dining room or um, any kind of like living space really because our, our tiny little cottage house in Sydney and and also our home um, in the rainforest was mum's studio, you know. Um, she was in her 30s when she had us and she was building a career but if anybody knows anything about artistry it takes an incredibly long time to get recognized um, especially as a female indigenous artist and my mum persevered um, our entire upbringing just painting day in day out I didn't ever really not see her at the table with a paintbrush in her hand or behind her ear that's kind of what I, I visualize when I think of my mom, you know, and our entire walls were covered with Indigenous art. And even though we lived in Sydney, we always had a fire pit out the back of our house and a strong sense of our indigeneity through our mom's artwork because she's a fantastic storyteller. And even though at times it seemed difficult or hard, you know, there was a, there's moments where you're just like, mom, go get a real job, you know? Um, but she just showed both me and my brother that if you work hard and you're dedicated to a craft, you know, you become a master in it and that's really what she is now. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at her website before we met and her output is incredible. Like she's done obviously lots of art but lots of books as well and murals and installations in places. Yeah, it's um, quite incredible. And she's a doctor as well, isn't she? Like a doctor. Yeah. She got her PhD. Um, she did that through Sydney university. I think I'm not so in touch with the alumni situation, but she's worked really hard as a mother who, you know, has pretty much raised her kids single, um, while still following her path as an artist. And I'm incredibly proud of her. And I'm also incredibly proud of the way that she's been just dedicated to grassroots communities and local indigenous communities and and really fighting for the underdog you know she's really always wanted to make a space for new south wales artists within the art scene and has really strived for those who got colonized first to have a like strong imprint in this country because that story is just as important as traditional northern territory artists yeah yeah. And so do you think that did it encourage you to want to go down an artistic path seeing your mum or did it kind of push you the other way? Because sometimes people who have artistic parents, it can kind of they want to rebel against it a little bit. How did it feel for you sort of having that type of upbringing? Um, I think I was like very inspired by my mum's ability to not have to conform into like a nine to five job. And in that way, I really wanted to follow her footsteps and figure out how I could make my own path in the world without having to have a boss or, you know, be in an office space, which just isn't conducive to my lifestyle. She definitely influenced me to be in nature more than anybody in my life, just being surrounded by images of trees and landscapes, you know, it, I, I constantly wanted to be back on country or be in country, just feet on the earth. I, I didn't ever really think that I would do art, but it's kind of just been a byproduct of, you know, living amongst paint and canvases is that 
every single one of her kids paints, you know, and not like we're trying to have artist careers, although my younger sister is, but it's more just like a form of expression that I guess links us to mum and in some way links us to our culture too because art is really important within our own lineage, being Indigenous people and storytelling through that medium. And um, so what about your experiences of growing up in Sydney in obviously, like you say, a very busy city and you've got an artistic mother, you've obviously got Indigenous, you know, all this heritage as well. Was that tricky for you or was was it sort of more related to where you lived and people within your local community were accepting or how how did you experience that time? Um, I think there's always been a level of discrimination walking in the world as like fair-skinned Indigenous people. Um, my grandfather is was very dark, um, but he married a Scottish woman and then they had my mum. There's always been backlash to her fair skin and then obviously a byproduct of that is our fair skin and how we walk in the world. But it's testament to our ancestors and, and respect to our grandfather to continue to identify because one of the biggest things about this country is that they really try to, to and when I say they, you know, the government policies have tried to really like breed out the black in people and so it's really important that we continue to identify in spite of that because my grandfather was ashamed about being an Aboriginal man and we're trying to um, fix our intergenerational trauma by being proud of it. And so um, if we then go back to sort of, you know, you're at school, what were your interests? Did you have any sort of vision of how you could see your life unfolding, what you wanted to study or did you want to go to university? Did you go to university? Like what was your path, I guess, post-school? I never really liked school, to be honest. Um, I think it really started when I was living at the mission because it was so interactive on the mission. We had our aunties teaching us, you know, um, how to cook food. We were talking language. It was incredibly hands-on. There wasn't um, a distinguish between the kindergartens and the year threes. So when I did eventually move back to Sydney and go into like, you know, a proper primary school that had, you know, a lot more class systems, I just, I didn't, it didn't ring to me. It wasn't my type of learning that I wanted to experience. And also, Due to my years being on the mission, I had severe problems with literacy and numeracy and that kind of put me on the back foot. I think because of that, I really disengaged with with learning from school and, and wanting to be any kind of academic and kind of started to pursue a relatively rebellious life, I guess, trying to find out different ways in which you could walk in the world that didn't include the mainstream narrative. So... I did end up going to Sydney Uni and getting an arts degree after I finished high school. Um, and then after that, I worked for my brother's organization, mentoring Indigenous high school students and ran that was the only nine to five I've ever had in my life. Um, and then I've gone on to get a filmmaking degree at afters. Um, I started my master's at RMIT, but I stopped that to go and study horticulture in Bush Tucker. Um, I'm currently studying my diploma in holistic counseling and have done a lot of various short courses um, here and there, but travel has been my biggest educator since I've left school. And I think my biggest teacher to a lived experience of how to walk in the world. 
Yeah, I mean, you certainly wear a lot of hats. You know, you do your writing. You've got your book of poetry that's about to come out.、Um, you've sort of got your—I wouldn't call it. I mean, I don't know. Would you call it a fashion label, like your clothing range? Because、um, sort of fashion—it's almost like anti-fashion, really, isn't、mm-hmm. it?、Um, and you've got lots of different strands. And like I said, we sort of maybe can touch a little bit on the returning as well. So. Well, first of all, maybe tell a, a little bit about the returning and what that is as well. So the returning is a—it's a not-for-profit event.、Um, it's an event that was be- embedded in the idea of no woman left behind,、um, and really witnessing around the world and here also in Australia how spiritual communities, alternative communities, and kind of self-care and self-help is often for the privileged. I wanted to create an event that every woman could attend, and she could be a facilitator, or she could be on a scholarship、um, ticket, or she could be there as a volunteer. But basically, there's very limited number of ticket sales that I actually sell. So over sixty five percent of the women attending are on either exchange tickets or scholarship tickets. I offer scholarship tickets to、um, single mothers, refugees, Indigenous women. Um, and low socioeconomic women or women in need. It is an all-inclusive women's event. So,、um, if you identify as a woman and you want to be there to partake in what we partake, you are more than welcome to come. It happens over two days outside of Mullumbimby on a beautiful piece of land, and we often start the day with a big smoking ceremony. And there are three different kind of Portals that you can gravitate to that are always running workshops throughout the day.、Um, at night, we normally have some kind of concert or music, some kind of dance that we can all collaborate in, and、um, lunch and dinner is served. So it's really a place where, for me, women get to come together to skill share,、um, but it's also a place where our elders get to talk because we have panels and. Women in this community can have their voices heard, and to a large amount of women, and that women who all live in the Shire who may not connect because of whatever their their status or work or、um, lifestyle may be, get to kind of unite in solidarity on top of the mountain, and everyone becomes equal again. Yeah, beautiful. Like I said to you a little bit earlier on, I've had a few friends who have gone to it and said what an amazing experience. It's been so. Hopefully, I'll get to go to to one. I know we were talking about COVID and just having to be aware of that, but、um, but certainly I will include it in the show notes if and when you know the next one happens. And talk a little bit about、um, your clothing range as well. Then、um, I'm sort of yeah. What? How did that come about? Um, We Collective. It started a few years back.、Um, Through my kind of rebellion in activism and wanting to be a strong, you know, custodian of the land, I was doing a lot of research into the biggest polluters on this planet. And、um, beside like oil and mining, fossil fuels, second biggest is is fashion. The fashion industry is the second biggest polluter to the earth. And so, I kind of. Had to pause for a moment and figure out how I was contributing to this. One of the big things that I've done is dedicate myself to no new clothes in my life, so I don't actually buy anything new.、Um, but I wanted to have that have a ripple out. So yeah, it's definitely an anti-fashion activist brand. And basically, what 
what we do is take landfilled, um, mostly T-shirts, uh, and it's not dead stock. I don't ask for dead stock. It is actually landfill, things that are going to be going to land- landfill, and I repurpose it by screen printing powerful images or messages um, on top of those T-shirts and then resell them. Some of the T-shirts are partnered with charities. So um, one of our shirts, we give 25% of the profits to Take Three for the Sea, which is an organization looking to clean up the ocean. Another one of the shirts um, goes back to the returning. 25% of the profits go back into helping that event stay alive. Another one of the shirts is um, designed that if you buy a shirt, then a free one is given to an Indigenous person. They all kind of have a social impact to them as well as wearing something that I believe really stands in the integrity of being for the messages that we're portraying um, is standing in its integrity to not do more damage. Sometimes I find fashion brands hypocritical in what they put on their shirts, yet they're getting them mass produced in a country where I, I assume is probably pretty poor standards of labor and often children and and young women who are making them yeah it's um you certainly have you know many different projects on the go how do you work out where to put your your passion or your interest like is there one thing that sort of is I guess the guiding light for everything else is there something that or do you find that that ebbs and flows depending on where you're at in your life and what's happening in the world I think all of my projects have an undercurrent of wanting to reconnect people back to the to the planet and and the environment the land and so everything that I do in my work even though it may seem so different it's it is about bringing people back to an understanding of, of respect for the land in which we stand. And in that way, when we become more connected to the land, we become more connected to ourselves and each other. So that's really my driving force of, through my own experience and my own journey of understanding how I live and work in this world is through deep connection with the planet and deep understanding of the symbiotic nature in which I play within that space. So it, that, that's often the thing that runs through most of my projects. And do you give yourself um, a lot of headspace to work this out? I mean, you're obviously so thoughtful with what you do and very intentional with what you create, but there's a lot of noise out there. You know, there's lots of shiny objects for that seduces a lot of people and you're very clear on you know what path you want to walk where do you think that comes from or is that a process that you've gone through or do you I don't know journal or you know do you kind of set time aside to really connect with yourself how how do you kind of come about that process definitely spending time in nature is my solitude um I mean I'm very fortunate to live very close to the beach and I'm at the beach daily and if I'm not at the beach I am up in the forest outside of Malambimbi. This is kind of the space where I can get centered, but also being with my family is a really good reminder of my path and my integrity and and going home to country and being involved in cultural business is also a reminder to me of my place in in this world and and I'm very much a student and I'm very much just trying to walk with my biggest integrity and with my truth and 
and that has to vibrate you know if i'm going to be be creating activist brands and wanting to create spaces where women can return to themselves then i i very much embody that in my everyday existence i i am very anti-capitalism i'm very anti-consumerism and i really enjoy simple living and i think that in the simplicity of my life it allows for ideas to come yeah beautifully said um do you have mentors that help you along the way and and what role does your mum continue to play in your life yeah my my mother is definitely one of my biggest mentors and we've had a um you know a best friend relationship but also a dynamic mother and daughter relationship for a long time which sometimes she's my mother and sometimes I'm her mother you know but for me that's really the way that I want to walk in the world with her is that we're both constantly teaching and evolving it with each other that there isn't a hierarchy just because she gave birth to me we actually have respect for each other and when we sit on the land we we tell each other stories and we grow together and in that way she's a massive mentor for me because she's constantly humbling herself and 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 looking at ways that she can walk better in the world and ways that she can be more aware and that's just a constant reminder to me that we have the ability to change in every moment and yeah she's a beautiful fantastic mentor for that i also have a very dear friend and 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 mentor helena Norbert Hodge, who is a local woman in Byron, who is doing a lot around localization, and where where you know, kind of voicing a lot of the similar themes in our life, which is that we really want to see a return to community and a return to a more localized economy, um, land based skills, smaller agriculture, because we're both very aware that this, including food sovereignty and water sovereignty, is the way that we can free ourselves and. Helen has been a a really beautiful ally for me through um my last sort of 12 to 18 months of of working. It's amazing you say her actually because I um released a book um when was it? I don't know. It's the beginning of May and she I came across her work when in that research because it's about the slow home and embracing this idea of localization as an antidote to globalization and it was really beautiful what she said on her TED talk the economic of happiness and yeah and these ideas of really um you know coming back to the local and and how important that is. So um and I only out, actually found out through Nat Woods that she was living in Byron. And I said, I can't believe this because I kind of found out about her work sort of through just research in general. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to look her up because, um, I, I really admire what she does. It's really amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. And actually on the 21st of June, um, she's organized a world localization day, which will be a online platform. It's a, a going to be around four hour, um, pre-recorded event with people like Noam Chomsky, um, Vedana Shiva, there's Annie Lennox, Russell Brand, um, Yael Stone, and I'm also talking on that event with Helena as well. But a really good opportunity for people if they want to learn how to actually localize with step-by-step tools and learn from some of the greatest leaders around the world to really tune into that space. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Definitely include that in the show notes. So I also wanted to ask you about your book. I love the title of it. It takes courage to tell the truth. 
And this is something that I talk a little bit about on this podcast, about being authentic to yourself and finding your own truth. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's such a powerful statement. And yet I think it's so hard. And I think it's increasingly hard within our sort of modern day culture about people being true to themselves and true to how they live their life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess, you know, as a as a child and teenager, I discovered that lying could get me, you know, get get me many places that I may not have gone if I could tell the truth. And it seemed like a very easy option. And there was a moment in my mid-20s where I had a partner who kind of asked me if I was lying or like, did did I think I lied a lot? And that was a really massive moment for me to look at the way that I was projecting myself and how I was actually cheating myself. And that every time that I was stating a lie, I was creating a character that didn't really exist in the world. It was just a fabrication. And then I kind of decided, you know, when I was 26, shortly after that, that I wanted to really embark in the world honestly. And and I remember having a conversation with an incredible friend of mine who told me, you know, don't don't care what anybody thinks of you as long as you're living your life with love and integrity. And so I thought, well, if I'm honest and I have integrity and love at the base of that, then that's unwavering. Nobody can challenge my truth if it isn't a tr- if it isn't coming from a manipulative place. Um, so from then onwards, I basically have just instilled that space of that I I want to be a truth teller, not just for me, but for my family and for those around me because it's really important that people say their truth because if they don't, they're lying to themselves. And I've noticed how my whole life has changed because of that. Things are open to me. People are vulnerable to me. I'm vulnerable to myself. There's much more room for clear communication. And and I think there's a real level of trust when you're when you're truthful people trust you you know because they 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 see that you're like opening to the cracks of you know failure or mistakes that have happened in your life and i'm the first to say that i've you know stuffed up a lot of times and i fail but i'm so grateful for those failures because it's made me the woman i am mm. And what about your your writing process as well? Um, another sort of strand to your bow, but do you can you share a little bit about your you know do you write daily or is it is it something is it like your craft or your art? Um, how do you go about that? And yeah, what's your process? I definitely write daily. Um, I wake up thinking. You know, I'm definitely a lot in my intellectual space often with many ideas and writing helps me to clear my head and get that space that I need. I I think I've just always been really opinionated, but I've now learned like the craft of how to be opinionated and not offensive, (laughs) I hope. But yeah, writing for me is a tool of expression. And I also, I, I noticed the 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 way that I walk in the world is is very different to many people that I've I grew up around anyway and around my influences and um I just want to be able to make space and and let other people know that they're able to make space for their own truth too and that's really why I want to write is to carve carve out that kind of place for people 
I think a lot of my writing has got to do with, you know, being a lesbian or having female lovers, um, walking in the world as an Indigenous woman, the way that I've experienced men in this world due to my sexuality, my relationship with spirituality. It's, it's kind of just my diary of thoughts and it, it takes courage to tell the truth. The recent book is a collection of poetry that I've been working on for a very, like, long period of time and I look at that now and I think oh my god as often you do with writing that you wrote so long ago how much has changed in my own life in comparison to that but it's it's something I've always wanted to do is just stamp out a book and and have that as a kind of dedication piece that I could give to my daughter or son one day to say you know this is this is my thought collection in my 20s and I want you to feel that and read that and yeah I really kind of created it not for me but for my future children yeah and um one of the things that I mean obviously on you use Instagram in a very um in some ways a personal way that you share your thoughts and your ideas but obviously you're very again very intentional about how you do that and one of the things that I've um I think is quite amazing about what you do share is your ideas on like sensuality and things that often aren't spoken about. Was that, um, was that a process or a hard journey to take to sort of be so open and to share your thoughts so freely? Because to, for most of the world, you know, people don't do that. And yet it's such a part of the human experience. Yeah, I think definitely in my early 20s, I discovered um, this this kind of, you know, free love aspect to liberation and sensuality and sexuality. Um, I had a partner who I was madly in love with who lived in California and she was pretty outrageous and a really big influencer into the way that I spoke about my sexuality and sensuality. So I think that in a lot of ways it's just been the people that I've met in my 20s and the experiences I've had, but I've, I've also been deeply interested in, in conscious sexuality groups and in Tantra. And I, I am a Tantra teacher. I've got my certification, but my biggest problem with it all through my twenties is that we're so catered to heteronormative, um, couples and there wasn't much room to kind of look beyond the bodies, even though that's what the philosophy of Tantra is about, the energies and, I think a lot of my sensual and sexual dialogue is actually embedded in growing up queer and in a queer community and often sometimes in the city there's a real lack of like conscious relating for me in my experience anyway and I wanted to bridge my spirituality with my sexuality and I think that through the dialogue through my writings that's what it's really about is is we we need to be able to own our sexuality and for me I I own my queerness and being a lesbian and that is embedded in the way that I write and talk about it because I'm I'm not ashamed of it and I'm definitely not ashamed to be a conscious lover who walks in this world and shows up for other women who I make love to. Was that very hard though at that initial sort of I guess opening up and being honest with others about you? Yeah I mean definitely I I, I didn't just wake up one morning and suddenly was able to to 
discuss or talk in these ways. I, I did a lot of trainings um, here and overseas with lots of different communities and groups. Um, I've been in a room full of people who I don't even know and I've been taking my clothes off talking about, you know, what my head is saying to my body. Like I've been in very weird situations running through festivals but naked with mud all over me. But my experience in my 20s, I always saw my 20s as a place where I was supposed to stuff up, be outrageous, like jump as much as I could, even if I didn't know what I was falling into and just see what happened. And I think doing that constantly, I've developed a trust for myself and the world around me that if, if I do voice myself, I am doing it super integral and I'm not scared anymore because I've, I've had to realize that I didn't die if I stood up and took my clothes off in front of a group of people. Often our biggest fears is, is just a worry of something that doesn't actually play out into reality. And so I always have wanted to, to kind of jump in my own storyline and be like, okay, if you're worrying about this, you should do it. You know, if you're fearful of that, run to it because those, that's how I'm going to learn. If I run to my fear and I manage to live, then I come out a better person. Do you have anything that you're trying to run towards right now? Um, hmm. or do you think that that perhaps comes from that experimental stage of like you say your 20s where you are trying to define your identity and so it's it's almost like I think often we can be more provoking of ourselves you know and push ourselves into situations because we're trying to test ourselves I don't know maybe it's an age-related thing I think uh, I mean definitely one thing that I'm terrified of is having a baby, right. you know, um, because I just know that will be an initiation and there'll be no going back from that, you know, and a lot more about the actual having a human being for the rest of the life connection than the actual process. But for me, I feel like everything is an initiation leading up to birth, you know, like I, I want to push my body to all sorts of uncomfortabilities so that when I get to that point of actually um, laboring that, that I hopefully will be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and so we've sort of touched a little bit on, on Instagram and how you use it. How, how do you see that space? Like what is your intention with what you share on there and what you want to share with the world? I, I think I have a really love-hate relationship with Instagram. I'm definitely not a scroller. I tend to write my posts not on Instagram, um, but like I will write them on the spot. They're not super calculated. I often wake up in the morning with an idea and then I write that on a, a Google document and then I just kind of transfer it over because I really am trying to limit my amount of time on social media. I think it's more about um, just having my voice within the debate, really wanting to be part of um, the conversation. And that's why I, I use my platform because I, I want to be part of a conversation. I want to create conversation. I, at heart, I'm a deep debater, you know, and I love the idea of like peaceful debating and uh, um, I, I love talking to people that don't see the same way as me uh, to walk in the world because perspective, perspective is everything. And 
I guess I want to do it to also challenge people's perspectives so that they can challenge mine because I don't really just want to be talking to a crowd of people who believe everything that I say or read everything I say as belief. I, I want to be challenged. I, I want to be put back into my place to really think, is this the right way? Am I doing the right thing? And I think that's what my family really do for me is that they challenge me and, and they constantly keep me evolving. So I guess I use it as a platform to kind of instigate debate, but not many people debate with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, you're, you're certainly a very articulate um debater or you know you're very good at putting your your case forward what how do you feel about what's going on in the world at the moment and um obviously we've sort of had within the u.s this big push with black uh, lives matter and the the riots and obviously the deaths which is nothing new i mean there's been many other deaths but it feels like it's been a bit of a tipping point and obviously within australia there's a discussion that is now starting to gain momentum Again, what, what's your hope for how we can kind of move forward with this conversation, maybe into more action or what, what our steps forward could be? Um, well, I think that it's great in some way that this is being highlighted and now currently racism is on the you know lips of every person I talk to because it's real. And Unless you come from a family who have experienced that or you've experienced it yourself, we can walk quite blindly in this country because we're not told the accurate history. The great thing about what's going on here in Australia is that Indigenous people are finally getting a place and space to tell their stories and Australians are actually listening. And this feels like the first time in a long time that that a lot of Indigenous people feel like they're being listened to, that they're being recognised. I think. In that way, we can move forward with, with a really beautiful kind of collaboration on how we want to change this country. But it, we need to be honest with each other about the fact that we're walking on stolen land. We need to be honest with the fact that we need a treaty. We need more Indigenous people in the government. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about Indigenous people are still very much linked to culture. I think that is a significant part of of this whole story is that since colonization, Indigenous people have only been seen successful if they've colonized, if they've assimilated. You know, we still constantly do that. There's mining companies that give scholarships to Indigenous people and that's seen as successful large amounts of money. If an Indigenous person goes to university, that's seen as success. What I'd like to see is people's attitudes change that if an Indigenous person stays on country, does corroboree, is connected to kin, is able to, you know, walk through the world, understand bush tucker, medicine, that that is also valued as just as successful as an Indigenous person that gets a job at Commonwealth Bank. For me, I have a very different point of view than, you know, Indigenous Australians around Australia. We're all so different with so many different language groups, so many different nations, but for me, the heart of my culture is embedded in being a custodian and I want to be seen as a successful Indigenous person, not because of the amount of degrees I have or the money in my bank account. It's about the work that I do with the land and the work that I do with my community. And I think Indigenous people need to kind of be, be put up on a pedestal for their grassroots resilience, for their ability to 
always hold their kin with respect and to be huge survivors in this country as well. Yeah. And how do you feel about your role in what's happening at the moment? Do you feel, has it energized you or inspired you or do you feel frustrated or do you feel a burden that you need to be not necessarily obviously an official spokesperson but you know somebody that people want to come to and and ask questions how are you feeling about it all personally um I mean the first kind of stages of it went through was like I had mass amounts of guilt you know being a fair-skinned indigenous person I have to recognize my own privilege within that place I have um very black cousins, uncles, aunties, all of that. But me, myself, I have a fairer complexion. So I had to look through in my own systems about where I've, I have also been at privilege um, aside my Indigenous brothers and sisters. And that was the first kind of point that I recognized. And then from, from that point onwards, once I reconciled and kind of forgave myself, I realized that this is really about a collective of people moving forward with the right intentions and the same kind of um, goal, which is to be seen and heard and, and hopefully seen and heard in what they can do. I, I guess my, my biggest thing is wanting to create space for other Indigenous people to be heard, that we come as a collective that nobody is leading that we remove this idea of hierarchy which is not in our systems and we redevelop a more level playing field where all indigenous people are seen as equal regardless of of their skin color because then that will also trickle out to affect non-indigenous people in this country and so i guess for me it's about yeah, really just like standing aside in support and allyship and making sure that I have those hard conversations. And, you know, I'm definitely not one to let racism just happen. And I've also seen through this space, like my role is really to show up for my cousins and and my friends who have dark skin and support them how the best that I can right now, because they feel like the most affected in this situation. I have a lot of ancestral trauma passed down through my grandfather and my Indigenous side, but um, I don't directly live that, you know. I don't directly have um, people follow me in supermarkets or cops pull me over, but I have witnessed that firsthand while driving in the cars with my cousins and uncles. It's, it feels like it's, you know, an important, hopefully, turning point, but yet there's still so much work to be done. Um, and I know that you work in a mentorship kind of role. Is that usually with Indigenous, um, I was going to say children, I don't know, is it children or is it um, sort of teenagers or what kind of work do you do in that capacity or do you still do that? Yeah, I, I've worked um, as a mentor for five different organizations over the last 11 years. I work predominantly with high school students, although I have done work in Indigenous communities with um, little ones, you know, the Dajams too. So I I kind of mentor um, Indigenous high school students, mostly women, on finding their skills and their voice, being somebody that's like really into expression and the forms of expression through writing. I often work with the girls that I have at the moment with how they can find their voice and you know, it's 
it's it's also about bridging a kind of relationship where they have an indigenous mentor that they can ask things about cultural um relevances and protocols that may not happen if they have a non-indigenous person mentoring them you know there's also a lot of lack of trust within a lot of indigenous communities for non-indigenous people just because of our history so i've seen that it's been a place where i can really step up and develop amazing relationships with young women who are so resilient and strong and um really they humble me so much because i i think that when i go to these sessions with them you know that i have the mentor hat on and they have the student but i often walk away from our sessions thinking that they're my mentors and that i'm the student and that they have so much to teach me in so many ways and it's really a symbiotic relationship and i i love it i i love working with young women i i i love um you know kind of being able to be that big sister for them uh, i i'm i'm the the second eldest of five kids so it fits really easy for me to to really take the next generation under my wing and and specifically women because i have a lived experience of walking in the body of a woman to be able to relate to them. Okay, I've got a few um, questions here that uh, this, this podcast in the many ways evolved out of a blog that I had for a long time called Daily Imprint. And it was just uh, a series of short questions to kind of get a little bit more of an insight into you and your personality and the things that inspire you or, or feed you. So just kind of whatever comes first to mind. Um, so which five words best describe you? Loud, creative, sustainable, romantic, and environmentalist. Uh, what's the best life or career lesson you've learnt? Can I swear? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Don't give a fuck what anybody thinks of you as long as you're living with integrity and love in your heart. What's your proudest career achievement? Um, I think the first ever returning that I did was one of the best things in my life to just see a hundred women gathering together in, in love and, and connection and, and deep reverence for the land. What's been your best decision? Uh, my best decision has been to move to Byron and to pack my mother up from the city and bring her with me. Do you know, everyone that I ask who lives around <laughs> says the same thing about coming to Byron. Um, it is a very special place. Um, who inspires you? I'm inspired by the women that walk in this world that are courageous. And I have a lot of inspiration for people who are able to live and connect with the earth, um, whether they're indigenous or not, but, you know, custodians of the earth, it doesn't matter what your color is, but out, people out there who are trying to protect the earth and the water. What are you passionate about? 
I'm passionate about Indigenous rights, which I think is incredibly linked to environmental rights and, and activism. I'm definitely passionate about the LGBTQI community and being a strong Indigenous lesbian voice. Um, and I am super passionate about my girlfriend. <laughs> which person, living or dead, would you most like to meet? Um, I think that that would be my last surviving ancestor um, on my Indigenous side, whose name was Pemau, who was our last surviving ancestor before colonisation um, took over our, our country. What dream do you still want to fulfil? I have a vision of buying land with my family who are my friends, my, my chosen family, um, where we really set up a, a community and, and a way of living that looks like everybody takes responsibility of everybody and we move away from our individu individualistic views and move more into a we kind of behavioural system um, that, that's on the cards and, and hopefully that will prevail. What are you currently reading? I'm currently reading um, Come As You Are, which is a book by Emily Nonsky. Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. I'll look it up. Um, what are you listening to at the moment? Maybe any podcasts that you're listening to or anything else? Audiobooks? Oh, I'm actually not listening to any audiobooks, but I'm listening to a lot of music at the moment. Okay, what sort of music? I've actually been really deep in a Tupac uh, um, revitalization, who was a dear love of mine when I was 14. Great. It's amazing how music can instantly take you back to the person that you were. Like if you don't listen to something for a very long period of time, and you hear it again, it just immediately takes you back to that time, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And people you knew and what you were doing. I, I'm always amazed by the power of music in that way. Like it's so evocative. Um, and last question, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, um, I I think I would say to my younger self to be brave, to run at the face of fear and to tell the truth in every situation, no matter what the outcome is. And just remind her that she's a survivor and that she's strong. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a, an honor to, to hear a little bit more about your story. And, um, and you are a beautiful storyteller of truths. <laughs> so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Ella Bancroft, a writer and activist on the environment and Indigenous rights. I hope you enjoyed listening to her story and learning more about some of the topics and issues that are so important in our world right now and how we can move forward too. You will find details of all the things that we talked about in this episode in the show notes over at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast.
And if you enjoyed listening to today's episode, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast and don't forget to rate and review us. It would mean so much if you could spread the love on social channels too. Also, if you have any suggestions on who you'd like to hear from, I'm always open to requests and recommendations too. You can send me a DM on Instagram at Natalie Walton or email podcast at nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast and the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint.